So this has been kind of a long journey through the book of Romans, right? Lesson 49, we're in chapter 15. And really today, with just seven verses, Paul is really going to summarize what he's been telling the Romans from the very start, particularly of chapter 9. He's going to include the entire discourse with four verses as proof of his overall theme of the letter. And with that in mind, we'll make a quick overview of the letter. Let's do a quick overview of the letter to see how his texts prove what he's laid down for his readers, for the Romans. In the first eight chapters, we had this amazing good news preached to us. Paul telling us that we're loved and we're cherished by God, that we're saved by grace that no man should boast. It's a free gift because God loves his creation. There's nothing you can do to earn it. But it's God's gift alone to those who will accept his Messiah and his kingdom. In chapter 8, he tells us that we have been delivered from bondage and we have victory in the Messiah over the world and over our flesh. And through Messiah, we're able to do something that we've never been able to do, to follow God, to walk in his ways. Through Messiah, we can live lives that are pleasing to God. Through Messiah and the Spirit of God, we're now able to walk out the laws of God in the same way Messiah Yeshua did. Because he's taken up residence here in our hearts. He's leading us. And because we're now free from the bondage of the rulers of this present evil age, we're now free to serve God. And serve Him we must. Because it's what we're created and gifted to do. We're able to live out the law of God, not through the traditions of men, as in the past, but in the true essence of the law, by the leading of the Spirit of God. Well, then, starting with chapter 9, he begins to tell the Romans some of their responsibilities in Messiah. Yes, we're saved by grace, but we're saved by grace to do good works. Our responsibility is to do good. And in regard to good works, Paul tells us that we are to prefer our brother over ourselves. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And even more than that, we're to prefer our brother over ourselves. And he starts to tell us of God's love for his people Israel. And he tells us of this amazing plan of God. He begins by telling the Romans in chapter 9 of his desire to reach the Jewish people and make sure The Romans know that God is not done with Israel. He's not done with the Jewish people. And what does he do? He quotes Hosea in chapter 9 and verse 25 of Romans. He says, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. God is not through with the Jewish people. And in the very place he said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God, restored into the presence of the king. Princes once again with God. In chapter 10, he repeats that God is not through with Israel. 
And that he will use the salvation of those from the nations to draw his people Israel back to him. God is working salvation among the nations to make his Jewish people jealous through the salvation of the nations by Yeshua. And as proof text, he quotes the Torah and the prophets, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 32 and Isaiah 65. He quotes them in chapter 10, verse 19 through 21. It says, But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses said, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I found, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest by those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. In chapter 11, he just states it flat out. God is not done with his people Israel. In verse 1 he says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. It is in this chapter that he begins to zero in on the Gentiles' role in this plan of God. He tells him this is the reason he has so much zeal for his ministry to the nations. I mean, he told us in chapter 9 that he wished that he himself were cut off for the sake of his people Israel. And when you see God's plan here, you understand why Paul had such an untiring zeal for his work among the nations. He longed to see his people realize Yeshua is the Messiah and be saved. And this is going to happen, he tells us, through jealousy. He tells us in no uncertain terms in chapter 11 and verse 13, he says, But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of the dough is holy, the lump is also. If the root is holy, the branches are too. He says, I magnify my ministry. And that word magnify means honor, glorious, magnify. He makes much of his ministry. And it's not so much that he has a burning desire to see the heathen saved, but he has a burning desire to make Israel envious. If the nations find salvation and turn to God and forsake their idolatry, and the Jewish people see this fulfillment of prophecy, because it, and all because it was because of Messiah Yeshua, then they will be jealous and they will have to see that He is indeed the Messiah. And they'll turn to Him. He will, by His ministry to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles turning to God, make His fellow countrymen envious. All to move his people to jealousy. The theme is complete and it goes something like this. Israel rejects Messiah Yeshua. And so the disciples take the good news out to the nations. Why does God now focus on the nations? Why does Paul make so much of his ministry? Well, to make 
Israel envious. Scriptures declare at the end of days the Gentiles will put their hope in the Messiah. And because of Messiah, the nations will turn to God. They'll forsake their idol worship. And so Paul in these chapters is explaining this hope. And when his people Israel see Gentiles turning to God and away from idol worship and they start to obey the commands of God and it's because of Yeshua, they'll have to reason that Yeshua is the Messiah and put their hope in him also. That's why he says, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen. I mean, how clear does it get? But the whole plan depends on Israel seeing that the nations have turned to God. And how will they know? Well, simple. These Gentiles, these heathens' lives will change. They'll begin to obey God. The laws of God that apply to them. They'll stop their idol worship. And believe me, There's plenty of idol worship in Rome at this time. Rome is a city of many gods at this time. It has a pantheon built for all the gods of Rome. There were temples where offerings were made, offering to idols, drunken orgies for the gods. And so for a Jew at this time to believe that Gentiles are turning to God they're going to have to see that Gentiles do separate themselves from these things that the rabbis have determined were unclean. If they don't see a change, if they don't see a separation, hey, these guys don't really believe. They haven't actually turned. And so in chapter 11, he warns these Romans, he says, do not be arrogant over the fact that God has reached out to the nations through Messiah Yeshua because it is His plan to make Israel jealous through the turning of the nations. They would see the nations turning to God and because because it was through Messiah Yeshua, they would realize He was the Messiah and turn to Him as well. That's why it says in 18, it says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. You will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. If God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. You see, he warns them, don't be arrogant toward the Jewish people. Arrogance is the opposite of humility. It's the opposite of faith in Messiah Yeshua. Faith in Messiah Yeshua dictates that you realize that you are nothing, that you deserve death. But through Messiah Yeshua, you can have life. A free gift, you've nothing to be arrogant over. And so he says, they were broken off because of their faithlessness. And if you're arrogant, which is faithlessness as well, you'll be broken off. This is one of the sternest warnings of Paul in all of his letters. Think about it. You'll be broken off. So he's leading them in this direction. And why would he warn them against arrogance toward the Jewish people? Well, because in chapter 14, he tells them about 
a fly in the ointment here. There's a problem with the plan here. There's problems in Rome. They're having problems and they stem from things so simple as food and fast days. They're having problems and the problems stem from not having respect for the opinions of others. You have to remember that at this time, both Jews, believing Jews and non-believing Jews, are just returning to Rome. After a five-year expulsion ordered by Claudius, a wave of anti-Semitism has led to the expulsion of the Jewish people, the population in Rome in 49 common era. And then in 54, they start to return. The Jewish people are returning to their places of worship that they left. And remember, these folks, believers and non-believers, Jews and non-Jews, are still worshiping in the same assemblies at this time. But though they're together in the same assemblies, they don't have respect for each other's opinions. They're bickering about simple things like food and fast days. They're majoring on the minors. So Paul says, now accept the one whose faith, who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. They're not respecting the opinions of others. The dispute is over food and special fast days. The church, sadly, for the most part, has taken this to mean the food laws of God and the Sabbath of God. And I mean, just a quick read tells you that can't be. We all know that Paul is not speaking of the Sabbath because it clearly says, of his opinions. Let me tell you something. God's laws regarding the Sabbath and his dietary laws are not any man's opinions. They're absolutes. They are the commands of God. You can have opinions about God's law, but God's law is God's law. It's not a for debate. It's not a for opinions. The Sabbath... The instructions for the Sabbath were written in stone for a reason. (laughs) Chapter 14 is simply about the opinions of men, and that's why Paul will say in regard to today's, one man considers one day above another. It's his opinion. So we're not speaking about the commands of God, but opinions. And so what opinions... Could there be in regard to food? Whether or not the foods that God gave were unclean? Well, the rabbis determined and taught that if food was touched by a Gentile, it was unclean. The rabbis forbid forbid Jews from entering the home of a non-Jew for fear of idols being in there. From eating foods touched by Gentiles for fear of... They were contaminated by idols. From drinking wine from an opened bottle of a Gentile for fear that the first part of the bottle had been poured out as a libation. And we can see that even the disciples were concerned about the Gentiles eating food offered to idols because if we look at their decision in Acts chapter 15, they made it one of the requirements for new Gentiles turning to God to abstain from food offered to idols. But the rabbis carried it farther with their traditions, with their opinions. 
The command not to eat food offered to idols went a step further. And they said, you can't even eat food touched by a Gentile for fear it was offered to an idol. Special days were a matter of opinion. They were fast days. The Jews had many fast days that weren't commanded by God. So it would seem that the Romans, because of these fast days, were, because these fast days weren't in Scripture, were not keeping these fast days. Matthew chapter 9 speaks of these Jewish fast days. In verse 14 it says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? I mean, we can see that the debate was over fast days if we just look at verse 6. It says, He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, but he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. He who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and give thanks to God. So what is happening is one is, is observing, or we could say one is fasting, the other is not and is eating. I mean, talk about majoring on the minors. These things are a fly in the ointment for Paul because they are causing division amongst the Jewish people and the Gentiles. If the Jewish people and the Gentiles turning to God are not in fellowship with one another, then the whole plan of God to make Israel envious is going to fail. And guess what? It did fail. Because the church in Rome did not take Paul's advice and continued to boast over the natural branches. The writings of the church fathers show they didn't have any respect for the Jewish people. There was a wave of anti-Semitism that went through the church. If we read the early church writings of the fathers, we can see this anti-Semitism that was begun by Claudius continued. As early as 105, we read this, Ignatius. It's monstrous to talk of Yeshua the Messiah and to practice Judaism. And this is just the beginning. We went, and I'm not going to repeat all the things we went through these in earlier lessons. But this anti-Semitism continued throughout church history. The church fathers failed to hear Paul's warnings about boasting over the natural branches. And really to understand the letter to the Romans at all. So in chapter 14, he's telling us that the Jewish people were not eating with the Roman followers of Yeshua, but were eating only vegetables at the community meals. And the Romans, they weren't fasting on Jewish fast days and didn't treat them as special because they weren't found in Scripture. But not just that, they're judging one another even separating from one another over these opinions. And after all, these are just opinions. Think about it. If you were a Roman at this time, it wouldn't hurt you to not eat meat at a meal, right? Once a week at a community meal. Would it hurt you to fast one or two days extra a year? Loving your brother and being at peace with your brother is far more important than food and fasting. And so he tells them in verse 13 of chapter 14, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. If eating, if, if meat at the community meal 
is a stumbling block for your brother, then don't eat it and don't even bring it. If fasting is causing your brother to lose faith in the Messiah Yeshua, nothing is more important than that. Nothing is more important than loving your neighbor. Nothing more important than a loving relationship between Jew and non-Jew in Messiah. In verse 14, he states, As one who is in the Lord Yeshua, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Messiah died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. He's saying that, you know, that leg of lamb you brought is clean, but if your brother thinks it's unclean, as a matter of conscience for him, it's a matter of conscience for him. And it is unclean. And if he's distressed by your eating it, then don't eat it. And if you're judging him for not eating it, don't judge him. Verse 17 of chapter 14, he says, he tells them why of all, why. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Messiah in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. But it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep it to yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. The Jewish people who are still on the fence, some of them, Still not believing? Some of them are on the fence. Some of them have just turned to, to accepting Messiah as Yeshua. And they're still following these opinions of the rabbis on these matters. Their faith is not strong enough yet to fully and wholly follow the Messiah instead of the rabbis' traditions or to realize that Messiah has set them free from these opinions of men. And so he tells the Romans, hey, be kind. Accept those whose faith is weak. Don't pass judgment. Don't eat what causes them to stumble. And then in verse 5, chapter 15, verse 2, he says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. And not just to please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. It's not about you. Bear with the weaknesses. Stop bringing me to the community meals. Keep an extra fast day. And then build up your brother. Don't cause him to stumble over food. Give him time to realize the truth that Messiah has set him free from these traditions. So now we come to where we left off in these verses that Paul uses to sum up. Verse 7 says, Therefore, accept one another as Messiah has also accepted us 
to the glory of God. For I say that Messiah has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God in his mercy. Wow. Messiah Yeshua came as a servant to the circumcision to confirm the promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You hear what he's saying to the Romans? Get out of yourself. Because Messiah came to confirm the promises to Abraham. And yes, being a blessing to the nation is part of that. But Messiah came as a servant to the circumcision. Stop boasting. Stop being a fly in the ointment. God is saving you to make Israel jealous. Not for you by your eating and your drinking to alienate the Jewish people from Messiah. Stop majoring on the minors. He's saying we shouldn't be bickering over food because the kingdom of heaven is not about food. It's about Jew and non-Jew being one new man in Messiah Yeshua. Singing praises to the king, worshiping the king for his kindness and his mercy to us both. That's what we should be showing each other and the world. Kindness and mercy. And what does he use for proof of all of this? Well, he goes to the Psalms. He goes to the Torah. The law and the prophets. Amazing, right? This man who was accused of teaching that these things are the Old Testament and no longer of value, and all that matters now is grace, uses the very thing that he is accused of as teaching is worthless to prove what he has to say. All throughout the letter, he quotes the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms. So if you believe that what we call the law was abolished and is no longer of any use, that it's worthless. If you, if you think what Paul is using to prove his letter is worthless, then what is his letter? It's just as worthless, isn't it? Well, it's not worthless. And neither is the Torah, the prophets, or the other writings. And so to prove what he says, he starts with Psalm 118, which he attributes to the Messiah. Verse 9 of chapter 15 of Romans says, As it is written, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. I will sing to your name. Messiah will be the Savior of the nations, and with the nations he will sing praises to the Father's name. Now he quotes Psalm, 1, uh, quotes Psalm 18 and verse 49, but remember... In the days of Paul, there was no Psalm 18 in verse 49. By that I mean, yeah, David had written the psalm, but it had no chapter and verse. And so if you wanted to draw one's attention to a particular psalm, you'd quote a verse from the psalm, drawing one's attention to the entire psalms. So let's read a little bit more about this psalm, uh, of this psalm. Maybe we won't have to read it. Maybe I'll just summarize it. It begins with this amazing song about the Messiah. It speaks of God rescuing him from death, keeping, of his keeping the commands of God. And then at the very end it says what Paul quotes. Therefore, I, the Messiah, will give you praise among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Messiah 
And those in Messiah will praise the Father and sing to the Father's name. Then he quotes Deuteronomy 32. In verse 10 he says, Again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Deuteronomy 32. That's what the kingdom of heaven is all about. That's what he's been trying to get across from verse 1. The kingdom is not judging one another for matters of opinion. But Jew and non-Jew rejoicing with the Messiah in God for what he's done. If we look at Deuteronomy 32, a little more of Deuteronomy 32, we should get a little better understanding. Verse 43 says, Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and he will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and for his people. It makes me think back to his warning earlier. One of the few warnings of of such severity that you will be cut off for boasting over the natural branches. If they boast over the natural branches, he's telling them that God is not done with the Jewish people. And here he says, in speaking of the end of days, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. The key word is with his people. Why? Well, it's easy because God is going to take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and for his people. He's going to restore the Jewish people to the land and the kingdom of heaven is going to be complete when Jew and non-Jew live together in peace and harmony. And now he's going to quote Psalm 117. He reinforces 32 as he says this. And again, praise the Lord all you Gentiles and let all the peoples praise him. That's Psalm 117. You know, it's a very short psalm. It's only two verses. Let's read them both. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. For great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. You know, many attribute this psalm to David, but whoever wrote it, I can tell you one thing about the author. He was Jewish. And I can tell you something else about the author. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he says, Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples, for great is his love toward us. Great is his love toward us, Jew and non-Jew. His love for the Jewish people and the nations is great, and his faithfulness is to all people, and it endures forever. God will make atonement for his land and for his people, and woe to the person that gets in his way. Finally, the prophet Isaiah in chapter, he quotes the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11 and verse 10, and he says, again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root out of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles hope. Again, I think we need to read a little bit more. I think he, he would have us read a little bit more. Let's read a little bit more of Isaiah 11. It says, in that day, The root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left from his people, from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, Elam, Babylonia, 
Hamath, and from the islands of the sea, he will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel, and he will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Do you see what he's telling the Romans? It's not all about you. God has a purpose for the Gentiles, and that is to make Israel envious. And if you're not helping, then you are hindering what God is doing. And believe me, you don't want to hinder what God is doing. And I hate to tell you this, but in 2,000 years, we still haven't got it right. Paul summarizes the letter with this rejoicing of the nation and his Jewish people together. One new man in Messiah. That's what is important. Not food, not fasting. One new man in Messiah, Jew and non-Jew, in his kingdom, singing the praises of God together. And that's why he says this in the book of Ephesians. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. You see, it wasn't God's law that brought enmity between Jew and non-Jew. There's nothing in the law that brings enmity between Jew and non-Jew. It was the ordinances that were added by men concerning God's law that brought enmity. He goes on in Ephesians and he says this, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Messiah Yeshua himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God. In the spirit. There ain't going to be no bickering in God's temple. Let me tell you that. There's going to be no bickering over food. Or over fast days or anything else. But there's going to be a whole lot of rejoicing. In the plan of God. When he fulfills it. Rejoicing together. One new man in Messiah Yeshua. And Paul concludes. With this. He says. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, this is really the end of the lesson. Remember, I read right through chapter 14 to 15 without a break because there was no break there. This is the break. The lesson of the kingdom of heaven is being one in Messiah Yeshua. The rest of the letter, you know, is basically greetings and encouragement. I think we can all read that for ourselves because I'm going to finish this next week. I'm going to wrap this study of Romans up next week in 50 lessons. Because we got to get ready for that. I hate, I hate to cut it short, but... <laughs> but... 
The festivals are coming. We got to get ready for the festivals now, right? Amen.